Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. We're going to start something new today. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for, uh, man, long time, huh? How long have we been in the Gospel of Mark? Like a year. Can you believe that? I, I, when I first planned out the Gospel of Mark, I realized it was going to take about 18 months to complete it. So we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Mark. That's the good news. But hey, for the next two Sundays, uh, we're going to switch gears a minute. And we're going to switch gears. Uh, I, I had been uh, praying and, and uh, thinking about this uh, message and this, these next two messages now for uh, many, many months, actually. Um, I knew that there was a time in which to, to speak to this, these issues, and uh, the time is now. And so uh, we're beginning a new series today. It's going to be a two-part series. And the title of the series is Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. You might be wondering, who, who is a, a watchman? What is a, a watchman? Well, the title of this series is inspired from a verse in Isaiah. Uh, it comes, in fact, from Isaiah 62, verse 6. And this is what it says in Isaiah 62, 6. It says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. Who were the watchmen? Watchmen were men of Israel who began about in the time of King Saul. And they were men who would stand atop the, the, the gates of the city. They would sit up there atop the front of the gates, one on each corner, north, south, east, and west. And they would look out on the terrain before them. And they would keep watch over their city. They would keep watch over their people. They would look in the distance and see if anyone was coming. They would announce the arrival of dignitaries and uh, messengers. They would also warn the city of danger. When, in, when a foreign army was approaching. They would look out and they would look at external threats, the, the watchmen would, and they would, if they would see an army approaching, they would warn the city. And at the same time, they would also turn around and they would look within the city and they'd see if there was any internal conflicts. Were there any fights? Were there, were there any conflicts between persons within the city? And they would announce that. They would blow the horn. They would blow the trumpet, alerting the city to danger from without and danger from within. In the Old Testament, the concept of the watchman took firm root in the ministries of three prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel 
were likened by God as the spiritual watchmen of Judah. Now, Judah, as we all know, was the southern tribe of Israel. They were the southern kingdom. After the time of King David and King Solomon, there was a split in the nation, north and south. And Judah was to the south. And these three prophets primarily prophesied to Judah in the south. Isaiah was uh, the first of these prophets. And he prophesied in about the time 750 B.C. 750 B.C. And what Isaiah began to prophesy about was Israel's sin. The sin within their ranks. And because of the sin within their ranks, God's judgment was coming. And it was coming in the form of an army. It was coming in the form of the Babylonian army that would soon come to Judah, would destroy Jerusalem, and take all the Israelites captive. Isaiah, as you read through that book, you'll, you'll see him recognizing that Babylon is coming. Babylon is coming to judge Israel on God's behalf. And as Isaiah prophesied from 750 on for a number of years, later on down the road in 586 B.C., Babylon came to Judah and took her away, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Isaiah prophesied before the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah, our second prophet, he prophesied during the Babylonian exile. He prophesied in 626 and following, both before and during that event. And then Ezekiel, our third prophet, he prophesied after the captivity. He prophesied when the Jews had already been taken to Babylon and Ezekiel himself was in Babylon with the Israelites, beckoning them to turn from their sin and repent. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The spiritual watchmen of Judah. There were many other watchmen. And the book of Isaiah indicates that the vast majority of the watchmen of Israel were failing their duty. They were failing to sound the alarm when an army was approaching. They were failing to look within the gates and see the danger that was within their own ranks. And this is what Isaiah had to say about the many watchmen who were failing their duty. Notice what he says in Isaiah 56. He says, All you beasts of the field, come to devour. In other words, all you nations around the world, come and, come and devour Judah. All you beasts in the forest, because his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. They cannot sound the alarm. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. The watchmen were failing. As a result of their failure to sound the alarm, 
Judah was falling into greater and deeper sin. And God's judgment was coming. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were three examples of watchmen that were doing what God was asking them to do. But Judah, unfortunately, wasn't really listening to what they had to say. And Jeremiah speaks to the fact that Judah, though there were some watchmen who were sounding the alarm, Judah's ears were calloused. Notice what Jeremiah says. He says this, As a fountain wells up with water, so Judah wells up with her wickedness. Everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Thus says the Lord, I set watchmen over you, Judah, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. God made it clear, when you don't listen to the watchman, judgment is coming. Some were sounding the alarm. Other watchmen were failing too. But I want to get to the root of this question. Why did they blow the trumpet? Why did they sound the alarm? What was the fundamental, if we were to break it down, what is the fundamental purpose of why they sounded the alarm? And this next section of Scripture that we're about to read in Ezekiel is lengthy, but it's powerful. It's perhaps one of the more powerful Scriptures I've ever read. And it is this Scripture which ultimately shapes what we're going to be talking about today. This is why they sounded the alarm. Take a look at Ezekiel 33 says this, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land, when judgment is upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and if he warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning, so his blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. On to the next section. But if the watchman sees the sword, judgment, sin... If he sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away any person from among them, he is taken away in iniquity and sin, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. I ask the question again, why did the watchman blow the trumpet? 
Why did they sound the alarm? First, in your outlines. They sounded the alarm to call sinners to repentance that they might avoid the judgment of God. They sounded the alarm because sin was in their midst. And they knew if their people did not repent, they would not avoid God's judgment. But second, and perhaps strikingly, they sounded the alarm to keep their own conscience clean before God, that God would not judge them for watching sin abound and doing nothing about it. They sounded the alarm to keep their own conscience clean. Because they knew if they failed to sound the alarm and the people died in their sin and the people died in their iniquity, the people's blood would be on their hands. The watchman's hands. The watchman's hands. Are we silent when we see sin? Are we quiet when we see an enemy approaching? Do we blow the trumpet? Do we sound the alarm? Or do we watch sin abound and do nothing? As I mentioned earlier, the title of this series of messages is Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace. And this Sunday and next, uh, I would like to sound the alarm. This Sunday and next, I would like to blow the trumpet. I don't take pleasure in sounding the alarm. I don't take pleasure in blowing the trumpet. Because that means that sin is abounding. And God's judgment is probably near. But I feel compelled to sound the alarm... Because if I don't do something about it, if we don't do something about it, then Ezekiel 33 suggests to me that God will hold me and all of us accountable for our silence. And that's not acceptable. May I also add, before we sound these alarms, that this Sunday and next, I'm not speaking about the only alarms to be sounded. I'm speaking about two. And there are many others. And perhaps this series needs to be uh, expanded. But I've, uh, I've, I've chosen two. I've chosen two trumpets to blow. I've chosen two alarms to sound. And uh, for now, these are what we're going to deal with. Part one of this series entitled, Watchmen Never Hold Their Peace, pertains to the issue of homosexuality and marriage. Homosexuality and marriage. And part two of this series will pertain to the issue of abortion and life. Abortion and life. And we'll be covering that next week. But today, on to the issue of homosexuality and marriage. Oh, what is homosexuality? We've got to define this. We're talking about this term. What, what is it? That's uh, a good question. WordNet Dictionary, coming from Princeton University, says this. Uh, homosexuality is a sexual attraction to or sexual relations with persons of the same sex. Uh, so there's a, a starting definition for all of us to work with here. 
What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? You know, uh, I, I often, as I talk to people about this issue, as I talk to Christians about this issue, there's a lot of emotion. Um, there's a lot of feelings behind this issue. I know uh, many of you have a family member who's uh, homosexual. I know many of you have homosexual friends and neighbors, uh, co-workers. Um, we all could probably name someone that we know um, who is a homosexual. And uh, there's, so there's a lot of emotion behind this subject. There's a lot of sensitivity behind this subject. And uh, I recognize that. I recognize, and, and I, my wife can attest to this, in the last month as this message has been approaching, I've been, uh, I've been uneasy about it. I've been anxious about it. Because I know that what we're about to deal with here is, is not popular. Uh, it's not well received when we walk outside these doors. Sometimes it's not well, well received inside these doors. But this question, what does the Bible say, is of utmost importance. If we don't listen to this, if we don't listen to, to the answer to this question, then I'm not sure what we're doing as a community who upholds the Bible as the Word of God. And so when we deal with this subject, when we call ourselves Christian, when we say we believe in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God, We've got to buy this. We've got to accept these answers as they come. And so I'm asking you today, regardless of your emotional attachment to this issue, regardless of how you felt in the past, today, clean your slate and read again for the first time what the Bible says about this issue. First, the Bible says this, it is wicked to act on one's homosexual desires. It is wicked to act on one's homosexual desires. Genesis 19, 4 through 6. We see a story about Lot, who two messengers of God had come to him, and Lot was housing them in his home, and there were men outside the gates, and this is what happened. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house the house of Lot. And they called the Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And so Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Do not do so wickedly. Secondly, The Bible teaches that it is an abomination to have homosexual relations. It is an abomination to have homosexual relations. The word abomination means it's unclean. It means it's repulsive. It means it's detestable. It means it's sacrilegious. Leviticus 20, verse 13 says this in the, in the Law of Moses. If a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. That brings us to our third point right here. The Old Testament penalty for homosexual actions was death. I stress the Old Testament penalty. This was in the law of Moses. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. We are under the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this law doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't apply in our age right here, right now. 
But it did for the Israelites. It did under the law of Moses. Why was homosexual action punished by death? I don't know. But God set it up that way. I speculate that for God this was um, just as an abomination as, as murder. Because as we know in the Old Testament, murder was also... Uh, if you murder someone, you were also capitally punished. And so it seems that we could put these two uh, on some level on equal, on equal footing. God had extreme aversion to homosexuality. Such aversion that He punished it by death. It's action by death. And we've got to deal with that as a community who believes the Bible is the Word of God. Fourth, homosexual lust and relations are contrary to nature. Homosexual lust and relations are contrary to nature. Paul says this in Romans 1. Familiar passage for most of us. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. You know, Paul's speaking here and he's, he's talking in Romans 1 about God giving up the people to their wanton desires. God said, if you want this, you can have it. He gave them up to a debased mind. And these were the kinds of things that our culture responded in defiance of God. Women left the natural use to go back to a woman. And men left the natural use of a woman to go back to a man. Friends, the created order is significant here. The fact that a man and a woman are the only ones who can procreate together. The only ones who can keep a society moving forward. The only ones who can make sure that we still have life together is significant. God designed it that way. And the natural order is important. And homosexual action is contrary to the natural order. It's not normal. It's not natural. And that's what Paul says. Number five, practicing homosexuals will not inherit, that is, gain a rich experience in the kingdom of God. Practicing homosexuals will not inherit or gain a rich experience in the kingdom of God. You say, why do you specify practicing? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6. It says this. Do you not know, Paul says, that the unrighteous... Will not, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Go back to the previous slide. Why do I mention that it's practicing homosexuals that will not inherit the kingdom of God? Because such were some of you. You and I, as we read the list in 1 Corinthians 6, we could check off some of those sins and say, that was me. 
That was who I was. That was what I did. Those were the sins I committed. And I was washed of them by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't speaking in 1 Corinthians 6 that that homosexuals will not go to heaven. That's not what he's teaching. That's not what the passage teaches. He's speaking about persons whose life is characterized by active practicing homosexuality. And he says those people will not be inheritors of God's kingdom. Can they be saved? Yes. Yes. They can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ just like you and I are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But will they inherit? Will they gain a rich experience, a full experience, the abundant life in the kingdom of God? Paul says, no. Not them and not anyone who is actively engaged in sin. Neither homosexuals nor anyone will inherit the kingdom of God if they are actively engaging in sin, habitually, consistently, they won't inherit. Friends, these are, uh, these are some powerful statements, these five statements about homosexuality and what the Bible teaches about it. Um, and I stress again, it's action. If you notice how I've worded things, uh, it's wicked to act. Secondly, it's abomination to have homosexual relations. Third, uh, let's go to uh, homosexual action was punishable by death. Fourth, the homosexual lust and relations are contrary to nature. Fifth, practicing homosexuals. Friends, I want to emphasize something here. Some of you in this audience and many people you know have a tendency toward homosexuality. No doubt in my mind. I have no doubt. They have a tendency toward it, just like you and I have a tendency to sin. We're born sinners, aren't we? Um, we are born sinners. And so it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me that many homosexuals claim that uh, this is within me and I can't do anything about it. It doesn't surprise me because you know what? We are born in sin. And I, uh, just as I am predisposed to certain sins, it doesn't surprise me that a person might be predisposed to homosexuality. That doesn't shock me. And it shouldn't shock you. I am not condemning, and the Bible does not condemn, the person who has homosexual tendencies but refuses it. This church is not condemning and the Word of God is not condemning a person who has homosexual tendencies but squashes them and sets them aside and says, I know what is right. I know what is true. I know what is good. And I will take these tendencies and I will push them aside by the Spirit of God. Friends, I admire someone who does that. What we are talking about is someone who has homosexual tendencies and acts on it and does it and practices it. That is what God finds detestable. Homosexual action is what is sinful. And because it is sinful, friends, as spiritual watchmen, We've got to sound the alarm. We have to blow the trumpet. We cannot stay silent about this issue. 
It's our duty to tell the world about this matter for fear that God's judgment may be coming. And when we, when we don't call homosexual action sin, when we don't sound the alarm, when we see sin and do nothing about it, as Ezekiel 33 says, we are putting their blood on our hands. We're putting their blood on our hands. And so I want to, I want to break this down. I want to ask the question, when we interact with a practicing homosexual person, what should we do? I want to give us a practical Christian method for interacting with homosexuals. I want to, as a community here, to know, okay, we know what the Bible says about it. Now what do we do about it? Person to person. When I have a family member who's a homosexual, what can I do? When I have a friend who is acting on their homosexual tendencies, what can I say to them? How can I possibly engage that conversation? I've, uh, I've come up with about seven things here, and they're a little more intricate, uh, intricately involved than what's listed on your outline, so you might want to take additional notes. But seven principles, Christian principles, that can help us develop a Christian method for engaging a homosexual person. I think this is important. First, number one, you've got to love them. And you've got to tell them that you love them. We talked last week in our, our, our series in Mark that, that God, you know what God expects? He expects you to act loving, but He also expects you to feel loving. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Emotion is tied to it, friends. If you don't have love for your homosexual friend or family member or co-worker, you know what? Whatever you say to them is going to fall on deaf ears. You're doing them a disservice and you're displeasing God without showing love toward them. You've got to love them and you've got to tell them. You've got to express that love to them. Tell them and show them. Secondly, identify with them. You know, it's, admit that you're a sinner. Share with them some of your shortcomings. You know, just uh, admit that without God's help, you would have no hope of righteousness or salvation. You've got to identify with the person you're speaking to if you seek to bring about any hope of change. Third, share your testimony of faith in Christ. Don't ever underestimate that. Explain how God convinced you of the truth of salvation by faith in Christ. Everyone's different. We all came to faith in a different way. And you explain to them how you were convinced of the truth of God. Explain how Jesus' death has covered the sins of the world. What a, what a glorious opportunity that is. Fourth, express your desire to see God's blessing upon them. This is significant, friends. Um, as you're interacting with someone who's in sin, anyone who's in sin, you start the conversation by saying, I want you to have what's best. I want you to have God's ideal. I want you to, to be blessed by the Creator. To have a life that's rich and full and happy. Express to them that you want them to, to be blessed by God. Fifth, but then graciously show them why their lifestyle gives you great concern. And couch it in, in the fact that you want God's blessing upon their life. Couch it in those terms. You need to say to them, hey, your lifestyle gives me concern. And explain how God views homosexual activity from the Bible. Friends, you, you really can't explain it any other way. You've got to go to the Word of God. And you've got to say this, you know, you, you, I've shared my testimony, I've told you what convinced me, and this is what the Bible says about it. 
Reiterate that you are sharing this out of concern for their well-being. Reiterate that time and time again. Sixth, urge them to turn from their sin. Urge them to turn from their sin. And if they haven't already, to believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. But friends, this should be a non-threatening kind of communication. Let God's Word speak to the imminent threat. In other words, let God's Word be the Word of, of, of declaring the sin and declaring the, the, uh, the anger of God upon those who commit this sin. The frustration that God has upon those who would commit this action. But you, you, you don't need to use the threatening words. Let God's Word talk. B. Simply appeal to them to consider the Bible's teaching as it relates to their lifestyle. Just appeal to them. Say, you know, take a look at this. Tell me what you think about it. Tell me, uh, tell me how you understand this. Seven, finally. Continue to love them and seek to strengthen your relationship with them. Unless they are a Christian who is practicing homosexuality while a member of the church, there is no biblical reason to part company with them. None. You have no reason to stop the friendship, to stop the relationship. That would be detrimental to their spiritual future, their hope of redemption. And and secondly, your Christian love toward them, despite your opposition to their lifestyle, will speak volumes over time. I can't tell you how many people I know who have like a family member who is homosexual and, and they tell me, you know, my family member knows that I oppose them. My friend, they, they, they know that I oppose their lifestyle. But they, they, they know I love them. They know I love them. And they can't seem to reconcile the two. It, 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 it confuses them. Because all they ever hear is, well, if you're a Christian, you, you hate homosexuals. If you're a Christian, then you're absolutely intolerant and you cannot stand a homosexual. Because that's the prevailing mindset out in the world today. And so if, you, if they know that you're opposed to their lifestyle, and yet they also know you love them, that is a powerful combination. That is a powerful, powerful combination. It turns, the, it turns their view upside down of Christians. They recognize that we can oppose a lifestyle and yet still show love toward them which is exactly what Jesus is asking you to do. This is on a personal level. This is person to person speaking to a homosexual and actively practicing homosexual. This is how we act like Jesus to the homosexual. But friends, I I have to go further. Um, As you and I are well aware, this isn't just a person to person issue anymore. This is not just a person-to-person issue anymore. This issue extends far beyond personal relationships. We are currently in a culture war on this very issue. Momentum is growing behind those who believe in the moral acceptability of homosexuality. And some who support the homosexual lifestyle are attempting to force, they're attempting to compel everyone to either call their lifestyle morally acceptable or face consequences. Some in the homosexual community are seeking to compel all people not only to tolerate homosexuality, but to call their way of life morally right. Our nation is beginning to see the beginning of these birth pangs. And if you don't believe this is happening, 
Um, I feel it, it is incumbent upon me to share with you some examples of this. And this won't surprise some, and this will surprise many. Take a look. In March of 2007, an Illinois high school required freshman students to sign a confidentiality agreement and promise not to tell their parents the contents of the pro-gay seminar they were about to attend. I can back all of these claims up with uh, articles, news reports. Secondly, in March of 2007, a Massachusetts high school banned parents from attending a seminar for students on how they can know they're homosexual. They banned parents from attending. You can't come. Public high school. Third, on April 27, 2005, a Massachusetts father was jailed after peacefully refusing to leave a meeting with school administrators until he received assurance that they would notify him before his six-year-old son received instruction on homosexuality or other alternative lifestyles. Now keep in mind this father was not saying don't teach it. He was saying, tell me when you do teach it. He was saying, just tell me. Just share it with me. Because I don't want my son involved in that discussion. Because it goes against what I believe. Many of you know about this third case. I know um, I've received some emails from some of you about it. Uh, It's a heartbreaking case. It's uh, Parker versus Hurley. It's currently on appeal at the U.S. Supreme Court. It hasn't been accepted yet. Uh, the ACLU, in the, in the previous appeal, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, they wrote uh, what's called an uh, uh, amicus... Uh, there we go. That's right. Amicus curiae, actually. Uh, uh, amicus curiae brief. Uh, to the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Massachusetts, the ACLU did. And an amicus curiae brief is, is basically a friend of the court brief. Uh, they, 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 as an organization, wrote a document to the judge in the case, and they said, this is what we think on the matter, uh, just to help you in making your decision. And this is what they wrote. They said, specifically, the parents in this case do not have a constitutional right to override the professional pedagogical judgment of the school. An organization dedicated to protecting civil liberties um, decided to protect the school's civil liberties while at the same time denying the parents' civil liberties. That parent doesn't know enough, right? That parent's not smart enough. The school knows better. And so we're going to override this this idea. And you know, the judge accepted that. He accepted that. He ruled in favor of the school. And that's why it's on appeal at the U.S. Supreme Court. You should know the dumb father that they're talking about um, is a medicinal chemist. He worked in, uh, he's worked in pharmaceutical industry since 1990. He has a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, Biology, and Physics at the University of Delaware. And he has a Ph.D. in Organic Chemistry at Indiana University. So he's a pretty dumb guy. Two more examples. Number four, on May 15, 2008, four California Supreme Court judges ruled that homosexual persons have the right to marry under the California Constitution. 
five. On October 11, 2008, first graders at a public school in San Francisco took a field trip to their lesbian teacher's wedding. The principal called it, uh, it, it really is what we call a teachable moment, she said. And these are five examples, friends. Five examples. I, I could go on. I could talk to you about Colorado, where SB, 7, SB 200 was passed. You know what SB 200 says? You cannot speak or write literature that discriminates based on sexual orientation. That's what SB 200 says in Colorado. You cannot speak or write literature that discriminates based on sexual orientation. You know what book does that? This book does that. This book says homosexuality is wrong. SB 200 in Colorado basically means that this book is no longer legal in the state of Colorado. In Canada, a pastor in Alberta wrote an op-ed piece in his newspaper about homosexuality. wasn't wasn't vulgar, wasn't rude. Was speaking the truth in love. He was fined seven thousand dollars by the court and ordered never to speak about homosexuality again, both from his pulpit and in the newspaper. You know, back to this number four, I want to say one more thing about it. I've got one more thing here that's really near and dear to my heart. And this is going to be a little bit harder to follow, but I I urge you to hang with me. That Supreme Court decision in California, in our state, was a 4-3 vote. Four to three. It was a split decision, and uh, and as you well know, that uh, today homosexual marriage is legal in California. Um, of the three, of the three who voted no, um, a man by the name of Marvin Baxter, Justice Marvin Baxter, wrote the dissenting opinion. I got a picture of him up there on the left. Uh, the judge on the right is Ming Chin. He also signed the dissenting uh, opinion, and the dissent is basically they they saying why they voted against it why they voted uh, to oppose allowing homosexual marriage in California. What we're about to read is uh, is difficult to understand, but I'm going to break it down at the end. So hang with me. This is what those justices, these are California Supreme Court justices said about what comes next after homosexual marriage. Notice this. The majority asserts... Though a denial of same-sex marriage is no longer justified, the state of California continues to have a strong and adequate justification for refusing to officially sanction polygamous or incestuous relationships because of their potentially detrimental effect on a sound family environment. Go on. The bans on incestuous and polygamous marriages are ancient and deep-rooted, and as the majority suggests, they are supported by strong considerations of social policy. Yet here the majority overturns, in abrupt fashion, an initiative statute confirming the equally deep-rooted assumption that marriage is a union of partners of the opposite sex. The majority does so by relying on its own assessment of contemporary community values. Go on. That approach, listen to this, that approach creates the opportunity for further judicial extension of this perceived constitutional right into dangerous territory. Who can say then that in 10, 15, or 20 years, an activist court might not rely on the majority's analysis to conclude 
on the basis of a perceived evolution in community values that the laws prohibiting polygamous and incestuous marriages were no longer constitutionally justified. If you didn't catch that, let me break it down. First, the four judges who voted in favor of allowing homosexual couples the right to marry in California oppose and say they oppose incest and polygamy because of the common assumption that such relationships would have a detrimental effect on a sound family environment. It was not long ago that our society commonly assumed that homosexuality was detrimental to the family. Since our society's common assumptions about homosexuality have supposedly changed, and I emphasize supposedly, who is to say that its assumptions about incest and polygamy will remain constant? In debate terminology, the, the line of argumentation that Justice Marvin Baxter is employing is called the slippery slope argument. It's an argument that is not necessarily true. It is an argument that oftentimes can be false but it also oftentimes has a lot of merit to it, a lot of truth to it. I, for one, I buy that argument. I buy that line of argumentation. I, for one, find great merits in the words of that California Supreme Court justice. I, for one, believe that if the state of California and our nation begins to accept homosexual couples in the institution of marriage, we will soon see polygamous marriages in my lifetime and most likely group marriages, incestuous marriages, and child marriages joining that same institution by the time my son goes. Remember Romans 1? The Apostle Paul teaches us that people gave, God gave people up to whatever they desired. Modern sociologists tell us that homosexual persons account for one to 4% of the population. Homosexual persons account for 1% to 4% of the population. They're of little physical significance. Yet look how far that movement has come in getting the desires of its heart. Do you suppose it's out of the question that there might be 1% to 4% of our population who will soon advocate polygamy? I don't. And soon thereafter, there will be 1% to 4% of the population who soon wish to marry in groups. Two guys and two girls. Or wishing to marry within their own family. Or wishing to marry a minor. You see, God gives people up to their wanton desires, the Bible says. Friends, marriage is under attack. And the Bible is no stranger to the idea that marriage will be undermined in the latter days. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. It's a fascinating passage. He says this, Now the Spirit of God expressly says that in latter times, in the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding to marry? 
You ever come across that text? Probably not. You might not recall that as a part of the last days, the eschatological future, the final days on earth. Why does Paul mention this? Why does Paul tell us that marriage will be forbidden? You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say why. So that means you and I can only speculate why he says that. And I ask the question, what might precipitate a global environment in which the most basic institution of marriage is prohibited? What might cause that environment to take place? What cause would lead to the eradication of marriage? What would do that? Could it be, could it be that the institution of marriage becomes so corrupt so distorted, so twisted, so altered by its inclusion of homosexuality, polygamy, group marriages, incestuous marriages, child marriages, that it becomes so polluted by these inclusions that society one day gives up on marriage? Could it be that marriage becomes so undefined, so ambiguous, so unwieldy, that government officials will one day toss up their hands and surrender and declare all marriages forbidden? No more. It's too big. It's too undefined. It's too ambiguous. We don't even know what it is anymore. When you enlarge the parameters of words and concepts, when you enlarge the parameters of words and concepts, those words and concepts begin to lose their specific meaning and purpose. Likewise, when you enlarge the parameters of marriage, when you enlarge the idea of marriage so as to include all of these things we've been talking about this day, you soon begin to lose the specific meaning and purpose of marriage. And when something is no longer meaningful or purposeful, it's discarded. When something is no longer meaningful or purposeful, it's out. Spiritual watchmen of Israel, of Judah, they stood atop the wall. And when they saw danger approaching, they blew the trumpet. They blew the trumpet to protect the city, to care for them, to show them their love and concern, to warn the city of danger, to bring about repentance of sin and avoidance of God's judgment. That's why the watchman blew the trumpet. Friends, today, we've got to blow the trumpet on homosexuality. And it is not the only sin that we need to be blowing the trumpet on. I recognize that. But this day it is. On this day, we sound the alarm. We don't sound it with hate. We don't sound it with anger. We sound it because the Word of God asks us to. And we need to be faithful to the Word of God. 
You might be saying, what can we do? What can we do about this? What can we do in, in the face of the trial that we're about to encounter, that we are encountering now? Uh, the first thing I want to suggest to us today is to pray and fast. Um, I would like us to set aside Sunday, November 2nd, to do this. In the Bible times, uh, there, was, there was a time for prayer and a time for fasting, and it was usually at a very significant moment in a person's life or in a nation's life. I, I can't think of much more of a significant moment right now. And I'm asking each of you, when you come on Sunday the 2nd, from sunrise to sundown, to abstain from food, and when you feel the, the pangs of hunger, to pray. And we as a community are going to come forward on that Sunday and we are going to pray. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for the homosexual community. We're going to ask God to bless them and to show them His truth. But we're going to pray for our nation, for its protection. We're going to pray that, that God would show us what we can do as a community of faith. Sunday the 2nd, I want you to set that time aside for prayer and fasting. Secondly, as watchmen, we need to sound the alarm. The, word, the world must hear that the homosexual lifestyle is sinful. And I'm saying four things here. Begin, first of all, begin dialogues, friends. Begin dialogues with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors regarding the moral acceptability of homosexual lifestyle. Do it. Don't be afraid to. They might argue you or, or become contentious. Engage. Dialogue. Second, graciously articulate your moral viewpoint as grounded in the Bible. Do it with grace. Third, seek to persuade others without becoming contentious yourself. There's no room for contentiousness. You're, you, you know, you're speaking on behalf of the Word of God and you're just showing, up, showing the Word and saying, this is, this is what I believe. You're not, you're not seeking to, to, to go to battle with them. Fourth, remember that only the Spirit of God changes hearts. He, he is the only one who can change their heart. So don't be downtrodden if a family member who you've been speaking to for many years is, is still not turning. Finally, as watchmen, we need to engage the battle. When the army enters the city, friends, you don't just keep watching. You go down and you take arms and you fight. You go to battle. The world must see that our actions match our words. But what kind of battle am I talking about? Do I mean getting contentious and getting angry? No, that's not the kind of battle I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very different kind of battle. Take a look at this. If we claim to love homosexuals, let that claim be supported by ministry to homosexuals. Let that be our battle cry. Who has an idea to accomplish this? Who will lead? I'm asking you. Who has a heart for this? Who might, in this community, raise up a group to lead the rest of us in reaching out to this community. Because we, we don't do that right now. And that's a shame to us. Largely, we don't do that right now. I know some of you do it on an individual level, and I applaud you. As a church, what can we do to love them? I'm asking you. Secondly, I'm asking you to vote in correspondence with your beliefs. A watchman's purpose is to protect the city from danger. Forgetting or refusing to vote and accept in accordance with biblical ideals is leaving the city to ruin. I make no bones about this. As watchmen, the duty of the watchman is to protect the city. And if you have an opportunity, 
If you have an opportunity (coughs) to protect the city and you don't blow the trumpet and you don't sound the alarm, you are leaving the city to ruin. Shame on you for that. God is not pleased when we leave the city to ruin. And I'm urging you, I'm exhorting you, based on what I understand Scripture to be telling us, don't leave the city to ruin. Sound the alarm. Proposition 8 in California, uh, these words are at stake. Only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. I will, uh, I will let you consider what the Word of God would have you to do about that proposition. Watchmen never hold their peace. Watchmen never hold their peace. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Let us speak the truth about the danger that is ahead of us. And let us speak it in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we confess. We confess, Lord, that there are many times we sit atop the city gate, we see danger approaching, we see danger in our ranks, and we fail to sound the alarm. We confess that there are sins in our midst that we are ignorant of or that we refuse to address. Father, we beg Your forgiveness for that. But Father, regardless of what we overlook, regardless of what we fail to see or refuse to see, when we know something needs to be called out, we call it out. And Father, as watchmen upon the gates, we look out and we see the issue of homosexuality in our midst. Lord, we know homosexuals. We have friends and family. But Lord, help us to love them while at the same time upholding what Your Word would have us say to homosexual action and to the homosexual lifestyle. Father, help us to find that precious balance of showing them love, showing them Your grace, but at the same time standing up for what is true and what is right. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would recognize uh, just how, how difficult of an issue this is, how hard it is to, be, to show this sensitivity, to show the love and yet also to show the truth. Father, forgive us if we've spoken out of turn in the past. Forgive us if we've spoken out of turn this day. Help us to speak the truth in love from here on out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.